I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Three guests this week, three very, very interesting conversations. I think uh, you will find something within this podcast that interests you. First up, Ian Dark. Soccer fans uh, do not need an introduction for him. Football commentator for ESPN in America and for BT Sport in the UK. Last week, Fox Sports announced that Ian Dark will be part of the network's coverage of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. And so uh, he came on to talk about how that happened and... Uh, and give you a little bit of women's uh, soccer as well in Europe. He's been covering the, uh, or calling, I should say, the Women's Euro Championships, which have been really, really great and obviously mega, mega big in England. So Ian Dark to start. He's followed by Roberto Andrade Franco. He's a feature writer for ESPN. And he wrote, I think, the best piece of sports writing I've read in 2022. It's certainly one of the best pieces of the year for me so far. The All-Star Dreams of Uvalde's Biggest Jose Altuve Fan. That's the title of this. The story is about the life of Tess Marie Mata. She was one of 19 students killed in the May 24th massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Just 10 years old. Two teachers, obviously, were killed in that as well. And um, Roberto went down to... Uvalde to three times, in fact, to report on this story, and he talks about just that whole process, how he did it. Um, he is from El Paso, and incredibly positioned to write a story about um, not just the Uvalde massacre, but sort of like Texas and guns and segregation in towns and writ large. It's a really brilliant piece, and I, I can't recommend you listen to it enough. So he's guest number two. We finish with Julie Kliegman. She is a copy editor and a writer at Sports Illustrated. She recently wrote a piece on Sarah Fuller's journey from kicker at Vanderbilt, you may remember Sarah Fuller, to a mental health advocate. Julie Kliegman is also writing a book on the intersection of how uh, athletes navigate mental health. And we talk about her piece on Sarah Fuller, but really sort of a larger conversation just on athletes discussing mental health. Um, where that sort of is now and how particularly like sort of when it comes to colleges athletes could still really use a lot more help but if there is a positive you're seeing a lot more pro athletes uh, discuss things like depression and anxiety and pressure and so I think we're in at least a much better place as a society where athletes particularly younger ones thank god are willing to talk about that and willing to talk about everything that that has come with that it's an incredibly vital and important topic and Quite frankly, I've always thought that every major sports outlet in America should have a mental health reporter in the sports department. Um, whether that comes to fruition one day, I don't know. But but I, I think it would be a very, very smart uh, decision for all, especially major outlets. All right, so Ian Dark to start, Roberto Andrade Franco, and then Julie Kliegman. Again, thank you so much for the support of this podcast. If you leave us uh, a five-star review and a nice note, that's sort of how the podcast continues. So I appreciate those who have done that, and, and I appreciate the support for this podcast over the years. All right. Without further ado, let's start 
with Ian Dark on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, he's been on this podcast before. Ian Dark is a football commentator. Well, you know, I'm trying to say football for him, even though, you know, we, we, we North Americans say soccer. Football commentator for ESPN in the, uh, in the United States, BT Sport in the UK. I've talked to Ian many, many times, written about him many, many times. He certainly knows how much I respect his work. The reason I wanted him to come on just very briefly this week is because of the interesting note, and if you did not see it, Last week, Fox Sports announced that Ian Dark will be part of their network's coverage of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. He's going to be a play-by-play voice. Um, I think some of you who are uh, soccer fans know that uh, John Strong is one of the play-by-play people, etc. And this is pretty unique. Some, you know, We have seen in this country broadcasters get, quote-unquote, um, as part of like a job share or loaned out for a couple of weeks, but it doesn't happen all the time. And I wanted to ask, uh, I want to bring Ian on to talk about this as well as uh, the uh, Women's Euro Championships. It was very, very exciting. And by the time you listen to this podcast, will have been completed. And with all that, please to be joined by Ian Dark. Ian, how are you? I'm very well. I'm glad to see you're well as well. Um, thank you for uh, joining me today. All right. So I understand that you have to be judicious when it comes to answering this question because there's, you know, it's your livelihood, contracts are involved, et cetera. But in rather broad strokes, if you could, how did it come about that you're going to be calling the World Cup this year for Fox Sports? Well, it was made quite clear to me uh, by ESPN when I did my latest deal with them. And of course, things have changed a lot because of COVID, my ability to get to the United States. Um, the fact that you know ESPN now have John Champion living in the United States as one of their main men when it comes to soccer commentary, that um, it would be possible for me to maybe, if I got the offer, to go and work the World Cup for Fox, who, of course, have the rights, as everybody knows. So um, it came about, I think, word got around that that was the situation, and... Um, conversations were had and an offer was forthcoming. So, you know, I love the World Cup and I think any soccer commentator would be lying to you if they said, you know, they didn't want to do the World Cup, uh, regardless of the controversial venue. So, you know, that's what's going to happen. Now, I'll, I'll be going in, I'll be working for Fox Sports. I want to stress that, I, you know, I don't want to go in there sort of treading on anybody's toes or anything like that or, or be an interloper. Um, you know, you want to be a good colleague to everybody there, go in and do the job. And I understand totally that John Strong is the highly respected number one commentator. And um, I'm pretty sure he's going to be doing the biggest games. And that's exactly how it should be. I know we're we're early at this point, but do you have any indication as to what your schedule for the World Cup will be? Not yet, no. I think they're working on that, and we'll know, I think, within the next couple of weeks. That's how I understand it, which games we'll be covering. Um, and it's good to know a fair way out, of course, because then you can start to just pay that little bit more attention to those teams as they play their various preparation games between now and the World Cup itself. So that's, that's always handy to know as a commentator because it's pretty difficult to have exhaustive notes on all 32 teams <laughs> the reason i ask you that is because i remember talking to you at different times and you had told me this is this is i love this stuff you had told me like in certain times you might call the embassy in a country to find the exact pronunciation of someone's name you will try to do your best due diligence to get uh 
maybe news reporters or journalists within a country. Obviously, I'm not talking about like Italy or England, but like sometimes, you know, there are countries that in the World Cup that you just you don't see a lot of. So this will be helpful to you, right? If you can get enough lead time, you know, that one defender who comes in in the 63rd minute, you're going to be able to pronounce that person's name. Yeah, well, the pronunciation is is, is a basic um, thing, I think. And, you know, we all have to respect that and make the best effort we can. It's pretty difficult with, with some countries to be absolutely spot on the money with it. But we, we do our best. You're right. Yeah. Um, have sometimes called embassies and, yeah, journalists. And if you can, the best way, of course, is to ask the players themselves. That's got a lot more difficult in more recent times, not only with COVID because they're in another part, another zone in the stadium when we have the ghost games going on. Um, yeah, there's there's a wall of PR people in front of them, but do the best we can with it. That, that Put it no stronger than that. Before you ended up with the um, the Fox assignment, Ian, did you, um, did you inquire or look around or perhaps your representatives about doing it for another global broadcaster, whether in England or or elsewhere in the world? Nope, uh, that didn't happen this time. I did the last World Cup, the one in Russia. And of course, um, yeah, different times then. You know, 2018, yep. we're in St. Petersburg and Kazan and places like that. No, I did that for host broadcaster services who are responsible for doing the worldwide feed. So any countries who can't, afford to send their own commentators or don't want to that they'll take that english commentary so um i worked with with them on on that last one do 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 uh should fans work under this the presumption that the the uh the if you want to call it the loan to Fox is for the duration of the world cup. Is it, is it like a three week assignment basically? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, and I, I you know, I'm not just being uh, diplomatic here. Uh, well, I suppose I am a little bit, but you know, it all had to be okayed again by ESPN, even though they'd made it pretty clear to me that it would be okay for me to be loaned out. Um, so yeah, that conversation was had and, and, and they're cool with it basically. And, and but I will carry on doing, you know, I'll be carry on, you know, I'm still under contract to ESPN. And I'll still be doing, you know, La Liga matches and I've been doing the Women's um, European Championship as well for them. So, um, you know, I've been part of the ESPN family, as it were, for over a decade now, and I hope that can continue. Yeah, good on ESPN. You know, whoever, uh, whoever, uh I don't know if it got up to the Pataro level, but whoever greenlit that, that's good on them. That's actually it's good to take care of a talent who's been very loyal and good to you guys and obviously good on Fox for uh, for adding to their roster. All right, one more World Cup question, Ian. Um, how many – How many? Of you, what will this be for you? How many have you done in your career? I worked it out at eight. Um, so I haven't covered every World Cup, but it goes all the way back to 1982, the one in Spain. So that was that was the first one I covered. That was for BBC Radio. Um, so I've worked for various <laughs> broadcasters along the way, uh, including host broadcaster services, Eurosport. I even worked one for Australian television, SBS, in 1998. So uh, by hook or by crook, I've managed to get an assignment at most of them. <laughs> Good for you. I will say it must be for someone in your position. And I, maybe you've called, bo- I know you're, uh, you've called boxing as well. It must be surreal to think about that, you know, you, 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 you recently called the World Cup in Russia. You may never again call an athletic contest in Russia during the rest of your career. In fact, I would, I would venture to guess the likelihood is you will never call a 
sporting event in Russia. Well, you're probably right about that, not for the foreseeable future. And uh, it's a very sad situation, isn't it? We all want that war to be over. And, you know, it's affecting everybody in the world in dire economic ways. But of course, the people it's affecting most of all, uh, the people of Ukraine. Um, and I've got some living in my very road of, of families who, you know, who live in my road of, of uh, putting up um, Ukrainian families and, and looking after them. And some of their stories are, well, they're real eye openers and put the problems the rest of us have in a lot of perspective. Yeah, very true. In Toronto here, there's a lot of Ukrainians and, uh, and they've been put up here as well. Uh, it does give you perspective on stuff. All right, I want to finish up with uh, with two things. One, the Women's Euros. This has been a phenomenal tournament. Very, very exciting. And I would think specific for you, just given, obviously, uh, where you live. Uh, England has never won, the. I think I'm correct about this, the Women's Euros. They're playing Germany in the climax of this tournament uh, it will be completed by the time you listen to this. So, Ian, just so you know that the, you will have called the tournament and then people will listen to this on the Monday afterwards. But it has been incredibly exciting, right? Like the, I read a story today that, uh, that talked about sort of they were – the writer was sort of explaining why this has happened. And it's so interesting, the professionalism that's come to women's soccer in – England from all the teams obviously that have jumped on board and and the and the best women in the world now can play there. It's game changed the sport in England, right? Like England now should be a world-class power in women's soccer, I think heading forward. Yeah, well they've got a fully professional women's soccer league uh going on in in England. So the teams are getting stronger and stronger. There's good investment. There's good television coverage as well. There's a TV deal for it. So, yes, it's flourishing in England, but not only in England. I mean, there was a period where the United States and a couple of other countries were way out in front of everybody in the women's game. Now, more and more of the federations not only in Europe, but around the world, are beginning to see the benefits of this. There's more investment. There's better coaching. So the teams behind the USA, a whole host of them, are getting better and better. They're better coached. They're fitter. Nutrition, the whole the whole thing, the whole gamut of um, attributes that any team needs. So what you're getting are far more competitive matches and exciting tournaments not sort of seven eight nil matches all right there was an england eight norway nil but that was a bit of a freak result really norway really aren't that bad england were just that good that night um but this has been you know, from the quarterfinal stage on where we had the last eight they've all been pretty competitive games you've seen teams like austria and switzerland who really hadn't made very much impact before okay austria had a bit of a run i think four or five years ago. But, um, you know, they look good teams as well. And given another year when there's a World Cup, they're going to get even stronger again. So the plot is thickening. And of course, because of that, I think there's a strong narrative going on now around the whole women's game. And I think for a while longer yet, it's going to grow and grow. The crowds, their record crowds, there are more goals scored. And the games have had a kind of edge about them as well and have captured the imagination. So, yeah, I think this tournament has been a light bulb moment, um, particularly in Europe for women's soccer. Yeah. So, uh, so again, I understand that the, the numbers in the U.S. are obviously not this because it's 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 not England. Um, but I wonder if you, I imagine you must have seen this. The numbers 
for these games, viewership-wise on television in England, are unbelievably off the charts. I saw the other day the BBC for the semifinal between um, England and Sweden. They they averaged 7.6 million viewers. They peaked at 9.3 million. Now, that is not the record all-time. I think the record all-time is when, uh, for women's football in the UK, is uh, when the uh, England played the U.S. in the semis in 2019. But these... Ian, these are unbelievable numbers. I mean, these are, I don't want to, you live in the country, but th- this is like Olympic caliber numbers, right? When it, when someone from the UK is going for a gold medal or something like that. Yeah, I mean, to put it in context for you, uh, the figures watching that game you mentioned, that was a bigger figure than watch the men's singles final at Wimbledon on, on British TV. So it's the back page lead story in, in all the national newspapers, this side of the Atlantic. That's unheard of. And inside there are features about the players and they've become not A-list celebrities, but everybody's starting to know all their names. So I don't know whether that continues, but for the moment there is a kind of, yeah, almost a, a, a soccer fever surrounding this team. Two, two more from me. One, there used to be, um, and there certainly this was the case in countries like Italy, uh, Spain, etc. There was a lot of sexism when it came to women's soccer in that particularly male fans would not take it seriously. They didn't go to the games. Um, the quality of play almost, I feel like, now demands uh, that those kind of nonsense arguments, specious arguments to be dropped. But I am wondering, and again, it's just of interest to me, are you finding more male fans interested in this England woman's team? Because that, to me, would suggest or shift some kind of cultural change where once upon a time you had a lot of particularly men who were very, ah, women's sports, I don't believe in this, particularly in, in your country. But I wonder now if like the quality of play is just such, and obviously the fact that England has a real chance to win the Euros, where you're seeing both genders watching these games. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of people I know have said to me, you know, I wasn't really that interested in this and uh, it wasn't for me. But they tuned in, particularly to that England-Spain game where England came from behind to win in front of a sellout crowd down on the south coast at Brighton. And they saw the quality of the game. I mean, Spain are a lovely technical team who really should have done better, um, you know, dominated a lot of the game. But it had a real edge about it, that game. There was good quality. There was a, you know, it was a brilliant England comeback to win the match. And yeah, it won a lot of people over. There's been a huge number of converts to the game. I mean, the big question facing it ahead is, will those converts stay when the Women's Super League starts again and it's Arsenal v Chelsea and Manchester City against Manchester United? You'd like the numbers to go through the roof, but sustaining it is going to be a little bit of a trick, but there'll certainly be a a big legacy. And I'll tell you something, I think a lot of schools are going to start you know, schools who at the moment only provide this game for, for the boys are going to say, well, it, it's got to be for the girls as well because a lot of them will have watched this team and they'll want to play the game. I think that will definitely happen. Last two from me. Um, you'll be around to be to – you'll be working when this happens, whether you end up, you know, calling games again for Fox, et cetera, who knows, it's still in the future. But there's – there really has been a thought for a long time, Ian, that the 2026 World Cup, which is the, the Canada-Mexico-United States World Cup, really can be a significant game-changer in the U.S. 
for so long, as long as I've been alive, people have thought, well, soccer's the next big sport. This happened in the 70s when Pelé came and in the 80s, et cetera. And I think people are now realistic. No one thinks soccer is going to be the NFL or the NBA. But this really, I feel like, could be a uh, a massive catalyst, a gasoline into the sort of excitement because we're going to have these this premier tournament in in these three countries and obviously the finals and stuff in the in the U.S. Um, I know I'm asking to, to sort of forecast a little bit ahead, but um, I would imagine you must think that this is going to be a massive moment, right, for, for soccer in the United States of America? Yeah, absolutely. And and here's a, something else. It's a quite exciting young team that the USA have coming through now. They've got to be going to this World Cup, you know, four years on from the nightmare where they didn't qualify for Russia. Um, players who are playing in the Champions League. But I'll tell you something, they're going to be even better they're going to be at their peak for that tournament there when they're at home. Home advantage and those players who are now, what, 22, 23, that kind of age, they're going to be really ripe, 26, 27, experienced enough, and still, you hope, with that amount of talent, with other players to come through. So, um, yeah, it's going to be massive. I think it's going to really grow the game in, in the USA, Canada, well, Mexico, it, it doesn't really need to grow it there. <laughs> They're fanatical enough there already. But um, it's important, I think, that the USA do well, too, because we've spoken about this women's Euros in England. You want the host nation to have a deep run in the tournament. Otherwise, there is something of a switch-off element to it. So it is vital that the USA make a very strong show. But I think they will be capable of doing that. All righty. I'm rooting for you to get Canada. Now, because I'm very into this team, they're, they've been so exciting to watch up here. They're, they've got a lot of speed. So it's, it's a group that is challenging but winnable. So I'm hoping you get the Canadians in, uh, when Fox ultimately uh, uh, hands you your assignment. It's fantastic, isn't it, for, for Canada? Um, and I've, I've looked at this team. I looked at them when they beat the USA in Canada just before COVID, I think it was, you know, in players like Davies. Um, yeah, they've got some talent there. And I think it's great they've made it to the World Cup. And, you know, I always wondered why can't Canada produce better, better teams than they had in the past? Well, now they're starting to do it. So great. All right, and Ian, I'm, because I like you so much, I'm not going to ask you uh, to comment on the fact that uh, Colleen Rooney was cleared libeling Rebecca Vardy. <laughs> good. All right, I'm, good. That's my gift to you. It's my gift to you. But by the way, good job by the English uh, judicial system because that clearly was absolutely the right call on that. That was a no-brainer question on that. All right, Ian Dark is a obviously, as you know, a phenomenal soccer commentator for ESPN, does, uh, has done some BT Sport in UK. Fox Sports announced in an excellent, excellent move, and kudos to both the companies on this one, that he will be part of their network's coverage of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, which is uh, coming this winter. Ian, I'm sure uh, we will uh, speak before that happens. If uh, uh, Until then, I should say, have a great summer. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports uh, Media Podcast. Continued good health and success. Thanks, Ian. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. As I mentioned at the top, Roberto Andrade Franco is a feature writer for ESPN. He focuses on boxing, soccer, and baseball. His works appeared in the best American sports writing. He is based in El Paso, Texas. And the reason I asked him to be on this podcast is 
he recently produced what I think is one of the best pieces of 2022, not just in sports, literally one of the best pieces that I, at least I have read in a U.S.-based publication. The piece is titled The All-Star Dreams of Uvalde's Biggest Jose Altuve Fan, and it's about the life of Tess Marie Mata. Tess Marie Mata was 10 years old in the fourth grade when a gunman slaughtered her at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. She was one of 19 students killed in that May 24th massacre. Uh, two teachers were killed as well. And I'll mention this many times as I bring uh, Roberto in, but head to ESPN and read this piece. You can find it on his Twitter feed, or again, I'll, I'll give you the headline if you want to Google it, The All-Star Dreams of Uvalde's Biggest Jose Altuve Fan. Again, I, I, I cannot recommend this piece enough. And really pleased to be joined by Roberto Andrade Franco. Roberto, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start here. Um, why were you compelled to write about her for ESPN.com? Well, initially it came as a uh, as one of those we know six people, six six Rob Elementary School uh, students were little leaguers. Uh, head out there, see if there's a story there, and and that's that's really what it was. I, I got down there on a Thursday, so about a week and a half after after the shooting, and you know. Uh, Immediately, as soon as I got there, you could just feel the tension, right? It, it's, as I mentioned, Uvalde is a very small town. Um, I'm from El Paso, so everything, when these things happen, when these uh, shootings happen, I process it through uh, what happened uh, where I live in El Paso. But once I got to Uvalde, I realized it was completely different uh, because of the size of Uvalde, right? Uh, El Paso is a pretty large city, you know, you could theoretically avoid that area of, of that Walmart where the shooting happened. And, but Uvalde is 15,000 people. It's a city that's seven and a half square miles big. You know, it, it literally has one main street that, that runs through the middle of the, of the town that connects. Uh, if you go north on it, you go to San Antonio, you, you head kind of west, south, the way it kind of curves uh, you head down towards the border to, to the, the Rio, the uh, Mexico-Texas border. So I got there and, and, and you know, kind of looked around. Um, I, I initially didn't think anyone was going to talk to me because by that time, we already understood what was happening with the cops not telling the truth, uh, with, with the questions they were refusing to answer. The media had been there for, uh, you know, basically since the shooting a week and a half and, and from talking to people just there, I mean, you know, obviously their entire life had been disrupted just because of the shooting itself. But now the, the roads are congested and there's no place to stay with the hotels. And, and according to some people, uh, cameras and uh, microphones and cell phones were being jammed in their faces uh, from, from people just trying to get a, trying to get a story out there. So, I was, I would have bet that no one was going to talk to me. Um, and I, and that was, that, I mean, that was always an option, right? I mean, me and my editors and I talked about that, uh, you know, they were great throughout this process saying, you know, don't feel like you have to write anything. If there isn't anything, don't force anything. If, if you don't feel comfortable, um, don't write it. Uh, and so I reached out to, to uh, Veronica Mata, Tessa's mother through Facebook. I figured I had one shot to, to uh to basically see if, if you know kind of 
make an impression, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. And, and I sent her this couple paragraph long instant message, just obviously telling her uh, how sorry I was that this happened, that I was here from El Paso and I'm a writer and I was going to be there for a few days. And if she wanted to talk about her daughter, uh, I'd love to hear the story. Right. And truthfully, I didn't think they were going to answer just because of everything that I just explained. And a couple hours later, she, she, she answers. She tells me, yes, we would love to talk about Tess. Here's our address. Come at this time. And, and that's how that happened. Wow. All right. A couple things here for my listeners. Um, can you give us uh, geographically just how far is El Paso from Uvalde? Six-hour drive. So, uh, so in relation to, to, uh, relation to Texas, that's kind of like a middle-range drive. Right, El Paso is at the very western tip. Uvalde is, you know, South Texas, somewhere along, I don't know, like an hour and a half south of San Antonio. Uh, you know, as a New Yorker, if you were, if I was to go six hours north or west, I'd literally be like in another country. So I would never presume that, like, no one should ever presume that I've been to a town six hours west of where I, like, grew up. Had you been to... Uvalde, like, had you known, did it mean anything to you before this happened? No, no, I had not. Uh, I'd heard of it, I, but I'd never driven through there. I've, I lived in Dallas for seven years, but that was a, you know, that, that's North Texas. So that's a different, that's a different region altogether. Just because of, of how large Texas is, there's, I consider, you know, geographically, obviously uh, uh, different areas, but also culturally. So Uvalde, you know. Valle South Texas would, you know, much more Mexican influenced. Uh, but no, I had not been there. But but once again, because I am from El Paso, you know, I, I did kind of once I got there, a lot of things felt familiar. Right. The, the, the Spanish, um, the Spanish signs up on the restaurants, just, you know, the, the, it's a working class city and all that felt familiar. You um, you've done a lot of different types of reporting. I, I don't know if you've ever um, talked to a family who's lost a child uh, and lost a child in like this kind of horrific fashion. Um, When you, when you thought about how you wanted to um, talk to the Mata family after they agreed to see you, just as a reporter, how'd you think about it? What, you know, you, you, you know, you literally are meeting strangers and it's at a certain point you're asking strangers to recount for you the worst day of their life. So how did you approach that? (laughs) <laughs> that that was the most nervous I've ever been. I I would say before anything in in in, in my life entirely, even outside of outside of reporting, it's one of those things where there's there's nothing that you can say that's going to make anything better, right? But there's definitely things that you could say that could make things worse, and and you know, and usually you try to connect with someone through kids is usually a good a good connection, right? You know, yeah, sometimes I meet athletes and um, we'll talk about kids. It was like, you know, I have a five-year-old and, you know, what kind of, you know, movie you've been watching repeatedly for the last month. And with this, it felt like, like I couldn't do that, right? Because, I mean, that's like their daughter had just been killed 10, 10 days before. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that was difficult. And, and I think, just repeatedly telling them, you know, 
obviously they they hear we're so sorry and the condolences from just about everyone they meet. So even that, after a while, you're like, um, you know, it, it, it's just very. At least I found it very difficult for me to to know what to say. So I just I just try to connect with them as as, as much as possible on on a on a human to human level, understanding as best as I could what they were going through, understanding that of all the things that they have going on, I was understandably, as I should have been, the last thing that they should have to worry about. So, you know, I was, I was, yeah, it, it, was, it was very difficult. And I'm still not quite sure. Um, I'm st- yeah, I, I mean, that, that's kind of, I'm still not quite sure how it happened, to be honest, because there was always a part of me that was, that was thinking it was like they could tell me to that they've changed their mind, right? And at that point, you was like, all right, well, yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. That's one of those things where you're like, yes, yeah, that's fine, I'll leave. Um, so there's a part of me that 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 was waiting for that to happen. But I mean, the Matas family were great. They were they were very strong, obviously, um, and they were they were very open with us. The uh, you you wrote that there um, there are certain things that happen when there's a mass shooting in your town. The media arrives and stays for months, and when it comes to unfortunately the continuing drumbeat of these kind of stories in the United States, like I think both of us would agree, people who've worked in um, editorial for a long time, like you have to cover it. Like it is a story, and in some ways, there's a responsibility of the media to to be there and to to tell the story of of what happened, even if it's once again um, repeating uh, a story that's happened before in other towns. At the same time, I do, I must admit, I often think like the impact of like this for the townspeople is the media comes in, there's so much intensity of the coverage, and then they leave. And then the people who, there are people who are left behind um, after this um, stops. And I have not done this kind of reporting. Obviously, you now have. And I often think to myself, well, how how would I approach it, especially as someone who's just parachuting in, in many ways, is really just doing something because it's my job and I've been assigned it and and I have to fulfill my own contractual responsibilities. Um, in some ways, and I don't mean to be pejorative here, you're sort of using your subjects who you may never, ever see again. So within... The prism of all this, Roberto, and again, I think it's a little different for you, and this is why I think your piece resonated, because you are a Texan, um, because you're Spanish-speaking. I think you can, at least you see some things that maybe other reporters didn't see, but I don't know. Is there, I guess I want to ask you, just how did, as a report, as yet another media person coming into this town, like how did you sort of process that where like, I have a job to do, but man, I don't want to be like a ghoul and, and you know what I'm saying? You like use people's tragedy to forward my own professional career. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's the tension, right? Or the, at least personally, that's the tension I've always felt. Whether I was writing about um, uh, El Paso, right, and thinking like, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, there's a part of me that 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 sometimes feels like it's because it is my job, because I I do make my living in in this way that does feel exploitative. To be honest, you know, sometimes when I'm, uh, I wrote about my cousin dying of COVID. That also felt kind of, you know, it, it's it's 
it's a tension, uh, uh, a tension with, with that, that I think about, that I feel. But I think specifically about this story, I don't think that many people would have been able to tell it uh, uh, the way I could so far as because there's very little Latinos in media. Um, so I think a lot of it, not that it was missed, it was just that that a lot of people don't aren't from Texas, right? They don't understand. They don't grow up hearing these stories of, of, of the Rangers or hearing these songs and, and hearing your parents talking about, uh, about these stories that, you know, these, this is what happened to your great, great uncle. This is what happened to your, to your grandfather. Um, and, and, you know, growing up in El Paso, I, I think that was the one thing that was the most, uh, helpful out of all of this, right? That, that when I was talking to these people, when I was talking to Roberto Morales, whose mother sued the district to, to desegregate the schools, you know, there's little phrases, little things that, that, that might've not made it to the final uh, copy, but I understood what he meant kind of things. Right. Um, he felt comfortable enough to, to tell me things in Spanish that presumably he wouldn't have told some other one, somebody else who didn't speak Spanish, but so far as attention. Yeah. That, that's, that's, I mean, that's always there. Uh, and I don't I don't I don't know if that ever goes away if, when covering something like this. I appreciate that uh, honesty. All right. So the reason why I can only speak for myself, the reason why this piece resonated so mu much with me is because I think I instinctively realized that I could not. I could not see what you saw with your eyes because of your history you um i read the piece that you wrote for texas monthly about your um your story which is pretty amazing um well worth reading for people that you wrote in 2019 your parents were born on the south side of the el paso juarez uh borderland and people should um and people you know i, I don't want to go into roberto's whole story but uh family of military traveled across the globe for many years left uh left uh his town after he graduated 17 work construction went to school very late so it's really uh, it's an unbelievable story and the reason i prefaced that roberto is because like as a white dude from new york who's had a very very conventional sports writing kind of um background i i i i how do i sort of say this i learned so much about sort of the history of of uvalde as it relates to texas writ large from your piece, which I really appreciated. Like, I don't know the history of the Texas Rangers at all. I, I mean, the Texas Rangers to me, I'm not even trying to be funny here. Like, I recognize them as a baseball team more than I recognize them as uh, as lawmakers in the, you know, in the 1800s or, or wherever they started. I've never been to the Texas border. Like, immigration for me is a much different issue as a New Yorker than it would be for somebody from Texas. It's just, it's not my world. And now I live in Toronto, a whole, a whole different ball of wax. So... You talked about in the story Texas guns, the U.S., segregation, violence, the history of uh, the Rangers, how it sort of related to this town and, and, and what sort of came from that. And so what I want to ask you is you really, to me, captured so many different themes within this piece that ultimately at the end is about a, a girl who was killed, about a family who's suffering this tragedy I wonder just as a writer, how did you try to storyboard this and how did you try to figure out, okay, I got multiple themes here that I want to present to the readers 
at the same time, the core of the story still has to be around this girl who died. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these were all, you know, conversations. I, 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 I might have not, I didn't know uh, Uvalde before this. I'd heard of it, but I did know it was right next to the, what's called the Nueces Strip. So once once that came in, I was like, well, that, that's that's part of the story. That has to be the 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 historic element to this of of what this area represented and what it represents and and all this this uh you know kind of like 450 miles by 150 mile strip of land that that's been contested so i knew immediately that that it had to this had to intertwine or or kind of live together with the present with the past um and that i i immediately knew that uh, uh that that was immediately the angle you know talking with with my editors that obviously that was that was very helpful you know we spent hours on the phone whether it was, it was justin bay or, or khalid salam or uh scott norton uh, uh scott burton um and yeah i mean you know that that was part of the the editing process right not 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 just here's the draft here's notes but talking it out like i said for hours uh, uh total just talking about angles and stories or or just just what i see what i want to write about and 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 yeah I, I ultimately yeah it was about the i wanted it to we wanted it to be about the mata family but also kind of situated historically and that was you know you know it took several drafts to 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 get that done the, there will always be an element of people who say ESPN should not delve into any political topic. They sh ESPN should stay away from gun control, gun access, institutional segregation, anything. And and not just like on SportsCenter or on some debate show, but everywhere throughout the entire ESPN universe. To me, and I only speak for one person, Richard Deitch, that is, of course, absurd. The 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 You cannot separate... Uh, politics and social issues from sports you never have if you just know your history go back to the beginning of time but if you want more recent history go to the berlin olympics in 1936 go to carlos and smith in 68 go to colin kaepernick i mean i shouldn't have to tell people this but it is frustrating that there'll always be the element and yes of course i understand that sports is an escapism and for the most part it is you know 90 percent of sports 95 percent of sports will always be an escapism so I, I, I preface that to ask you, um, did you think about that at all? It seems like your editors or the people at ESPN obviously gave you some pretty good freedom to do that, but you must know just sort of instinctively that there's always going to be people sort of who think that ESPN shouldn't go near this, ESPN should only be about escapism, and why are we sending this guy to... Um, to Uvalde to start, but the beyond that, you know, why did he, why, why did he not just write about the family? Why is he bringing in these larger um, sort of historical issues? To me, it actually makes the piece, but I wonder again, if you and your editors, you didn't get any pushback, which is great, but did you think about this at all when this is coming? Because, you know, you know, you're smart enough to know that this is, this is many times a complaint about ESPN. <laughs> I did no. As you mentioned, the editors were were great with this. The they they told me this. Don't feel like you have to jam softball or sports angle into this. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I, I knew there was going to be a even if it's a small there. You know, there's going to be people that complain about it. You know, 
why why is this why is this written right um essentially focus on on the escape that sports provide rather than what we're kind of trying to escape from right um but yeah i mean that, that i mean that's always that's always kind of part of the part of the deal when writing some stuff like this when um you know when you write about uh i should like if i'm writing about like some television executive you know i want to be fair obviously and i want to be accurate but i'm never gonna like really think so much about well how did this television executive like think about this piece and like did i do you know what i mean like it's just sort of it's in many ways it's a transactional business there writing about the matzis is different and i can only imagine for you there had to be a part of you that like I, i need this piece to do their daughter justice. Like I, I need this piece to, I need them to come away from this piece feeling okay about this piece. And so have you talked to the family since? And was that when you're writing this a part of your process? I haven't talked to them. Um, um, it was part of my process so far as, uh, uh, how can I put this? This, this was written I'm not even sure I have the, the the right words to express it, but yeah, the, the angle was 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 about their daughter, about them, about coming away from this, and and had they hated it, and and I, I mean that would have been horrible, obviously, right? Uh, you know, yeah, that that was kind of, and then also it's like I, I I haven't, like I said, I haven't talked to them. I, I did send them a link to the story. I haven't. I don't know if they want to read it. Right. I don't I don't know if and and that was also kind of like a, a, a tension. I was like, should, should I let them know? Should I should I tell them like, you know, you don't have to read it kind of thing. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know if they're going to read it. I don't know if they they have. Uh, but yeah, it, it was have if they read it or if they have read it and, and they message me saying what a horrible job I did that that that'd be horrible. Right. That that would even though I, that that isn't part of the job traditionally to care about what the, the subject says, but also I, I do, you know, it's one of those things that that's just difficult because of, of the, the, the situation of this. It's yeah. Yeah. If, if they were, if they weren't pleased with it, that in, in, in my view, because of what the story is, yeah, that, that'd be a horrible thing. The, um, the reporting on this that you did, obviously, um, it, it's emotional reporting. If you're a human being, I don't know how you can't not be affected. It's obviously not nearly close to what the people of the town went through. But um, do you have to, when you're doing things like this, do you, I don't know, do you got to, when you go back to your, if you're staying at a hotel in Uvalde, do you, do you got to decompress for an hour and just try not to think about anything? Like, how do you, when you're talking to people about losing a 10-year-old girl, like, how how do you... How do you reset yourself mentally after hearing some of these things and seeing some of these things? The the first trip that I took out there was was in early June. That one, um, that one was a little easier to decompress from because I went back to El Paso. I was around my family. It was Father's Day weekend. Soon after, um, I had some time to just kind of get away from it physically and 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 mentally and emotionally. Once I went on the second trip. Uh, mid-June for the All-Star game. And 
the, the hotels were sold out, so I had to stay an hour away in this even smaller town than Uvalde called Pearsall. And uh, I think that's when I started to feel it, when I was, Pearsall such a tiny, tiny town that it was almost, you know, I, I'm starting to write this and I'm starting to, to think about it and, I'm, you know, essentially kind of live with this. Uh, once again, not anything compared to to what the families are going, but you know, it's, it was there and, and Pearsall was so small that, that I, I did feel it a little bit kind of like, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's no distractions out here. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, obviously it wasn't uh, easy, but uh, um, I also remind myself that, you know, the, compared to what the families are going through, you know, this is, I'm able to see my wife and kids, right? I'm able to, to, to live life how it was two months ago, three months ago. Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 what uh, that's helped, right? The last one for me on this is, uh, what do you think happens to this town? Obviously, in terms of the individual families, their their lives change forever. And I don't even know how you come back from that. But um, the thing about these uh, tragedies, unfortunately, is these towns like get tagged. Like this is the town where this happens. The only thing that at least nationally, you know, people think about, like you think about Colorado, like Columbine, I, you know, you just think about that massacre. I'm sure Columbine has businesses and I'm sure they have um, schools and all sorts of other stuff. And like, I, you know. I hope that's not the fate for Uvalde, but like historically, like that's what Americans, if they think about this town, that's what they think about. So, but you were there and I, I, I've probably, I probably will never be there. So what do you think happens with this town? Man. They're strong people, man, you know? Um, I think there's just too many questions right now with with what's what's happening. Uh, but yeah, it's I mean it's hard to say. What's what's next for you, Roberto? What's your uh, what's sort of on your um your writing schedule? I'm um, actually right now as we speak. I'm in uh. uh Coachella Valley in California. I'm writing about a, uh, a boxing, the boxing scene out here. Um, so, oh, wow. you know, kind of, a, yeah, that's what I'm doing out here. Still, still in the desert. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. What, uh, I mean, I apologize for even asking this because I'm sure it's ridiculous, but what is the weather right now? Like where you are, are we talking like 110 something? Safe? So yesterday was 108. Um, and uh, oh apparently I came during a, a good week because a couple of weeks ago, up to 115. <laughs> yeah. Ay, wow. Uh, well, listen, thank you um, for telling this uh, story. Let me uh, give uh, a little bit of your sort of bio again. Roberto Andrade Franco is a feature writer for ESPN. And um, he this week published one of uh, – one of the best pieces I think of writing that, that has come out in 2022. The piece is titled The All-Star Dreams of Evaldi's Biggest Jose Altuve Fan. It's about the life of Tessa Marie, 
Mata, um, she was one of the people who were, uh, one of the children who were killed at uh, Rob Elementary School in Ovalde. Again, 19 students killed, two teachers killed as well. I realize, Roberto, this is very tough reporting, but I think it's important. Like, I think we probably both believe this. Like, there has to be a, there has to be a, an accurate kind of historical record of what happened. And I feel like your piece um, added really, really significantly to that. So I appreciate your time today. And, um, and thank you for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. Thank you, Richard. All right. And now we bring on Julie Kliegman. She's a writer and copy chief for Sports Illustrated. She has been on this podcast before. We bring her back because she recently wrote a piece on Sarah Fuller's journey from kicker for Vanderbilt to mental health advocate. And most of you listening to this, I imagine, have heard of Sarah Fuller. For those who are listening from Canada, Sarah Fuller was was a soccer player at Vanderbilt, um, made their football team as a kicker, and became the first woman to compete in a Power 5 game. And Vanderbilt is, while they're not Alabama, you know, they're, they play in the SEC and they're a uh, significant college football team. So that was pretty amazing accomplishment from Sarah Fuller. Julie is also working on Mind Game. That book comes out in 2024, which um, will examine how athletes navigate mental health. And we will talk to her about that. She, again, has an interest in a topic that I'm very interested in, and that's the intersection of mental health and athletics. And pleased to be joined by Julie Kliegman. Julie, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me again. All right, so Julie, I've talked to you about this like, like, a, like a tiny bit offline here. The intersection of mental health and athletics is really, really interesting to me. I'm sure it's of interest to me because my um, my late mom was a therapist and you know counseled people, and obviously that was one of her specialties. So that intersection's always been interesting. And when I was much younger, sort of um, starting in the business, no one really ever talked about it. And now in 2022, thankfully, athletes are really empowered to talk about it. We're in a much better place, even though obviously there needs to be more improvement. So for you, how did this sort of topic area become of interest? Yeah, I think it started uh, much like you with my own personal experience. Uh, In my case, it was uh, directly about me, I, you know, grew up experiencing depression and eventually got diagnosed with bipolar disorder type two. And I have always been interested in sports. And, you know, the sort of intersection is really compelling because it's until very recently, it's not something we talked enough about. You know, I, 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 I probably mentioned this to you when you were on um, last time. And I think you agree with me. And interestingly enough, I believe we did our, the last time you came on was about four years ago. And one of the things we talked about is like, I've always thought that assigning a reporter to the mental health and sports beat would not only be fascinating content, it would be an absolute like metrics winner for an organization. I'm like, I'm beyond convinced of this yet four years later, like that, I don't think that position exists. Like, yes, you wrote your piece for Sports Illustrated, and certainly there'll be pieces on the athletic about this. And you know, we've seen, and this is a good thing. Like people like, uh, you know, Demar Derozan or Kevin Love or Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka, they may write their own pieces about this, and they're pretty forward about it. 
But it's still, unless I'm incorrect about this, it still has not become a um, a beat in sports. And the way I look at it, like, if you're going to have, like, an analytics writer or if you would have a fantasy football writer, like, those are sub-areas of sports. To me, this would fit into the exact same place. Absolutely, yeah. I think I agreed with you then, and I, I still agree now because we still haven't seen that. And uh, sometimes I joke, and it's only really half a joke, that – the Players' Tribune is the only place really like full-time on the mental health beat. And of course, that's not actual journalism. I mean, it's it's great to see athletes telling their own stories, of course, but it's also kind of telling, I think, that maybe they're not trusting journalists enough to let us tell their stories. Boy, that's a great, you know what? You're not wrong. That honestly has probably done the most impactful, at least print pieces, um, for this. Okay, let's get to um, some of your recent work here. So, a year and a half, Sarah Fuller plays two football games for Vanderbilt, makes it the first woman to compete in a Power Five matchup. Uh, she kicks, uh, she, you know, she, she kicks off, I believe. And then in one of those other games, she has an extra point. You can remind me if she had a field goal or not. It, it, I'm blanking on this. I think she did. Um, she becomes obviously a major, major figure in sports. There is so much massive attention on her. Um, and then let's go for you. What happens next? What's the next part of that story? Yeah, so uh, I believe she had two extra points. I don't think there was a field goal. Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, part of that is just uh, Vanderbilt not being a very good football team when <laughs> she was kicking for them. <laughs> right. Um, they weren't you know, often scoring points in general. Um, but yeah, so she has this big, huge moment. She enjoys a lot of it. I mean, she gets to go to the ESPYs uh, with her father, which, you know, it sounds like it was a really formative moment for her. She gets to like kind of zoom into an inauguration event. She does all this stuff. Um, this was after, you know, not really expecting that kicking was going to be a big deal. It seems like she was the last person in her circle to realize that, oh, hey, this is going to get some national attention. Um, of course, she dealt with the negative parts of that, too. Uh, there was a death threat that came via her boyfriend's Facebook page, like someone DM'd him on Facebook. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, her parents were kind of getting nervous because people were finding their address mostly for positive reasons, but it's still, you know, obviously unsettling. Um, she obviously had her critics online who think women can't play football or that she didn't do a very good job on the squid kick uh, that she made um, or that, you know, she's a wuss because she wasn't tackling. By the way, she was not trained to tackle. She had four days to learn how to play football. So th there was not exactly time for all this stuff. Um, but yeah, so to your question, in the year and a half since, a lot has happened. Um, she has, uh, she got her bachelor's degree. She moved to North Texas where she's pursuing her master's in sports and entertainment management. Um, she has continued to play soccer while at North Texas uh, because of the COVID era. These athletes have like seemingly a century of eligibility for the NCAA. Um, so she's been doing that. Um, she, to our subject here on mental health, um, hers got a lot worse in recent months. Um, she had to step away from soccer at North Texas. She was feeling very burnt out and 
like soccer was kind of the root of her issue, which she said took her a little while to figure out. Um, and yeah, she was just in a really dark place for several months where she was thinking about suicide. She was thinking, hey, uh, if I cross the street, maybe I'll get hit by a car and that would be kind of nice. Uh, thoughts like that. All right, let's, um, wow, let's get into that a little bit. You know, one of the, I mean, Sarah Fuller is now 23. So all of this is happening to her at essentially 21, 22. That is a very, very young person to be thrusted into fame. And in particular with her, this is, this is my read, this isn't somebody like um, Simone Biles or Serena Williams or someone who had like, who was sort of destined for stardom young and had been at national events. I mean, Sarah Fuller was a goalie for Vanderbilt women's soccer, obviously an accomplished athlete in her world, but, but let's be honest, that's, that's not someone who's on the radar nationally. College women's soccer, um, has very, very little coverage in this, in the United States. And so to be thrust into that, to me, like at that age, that is not easy. And, you know, you probably, um, even if you are raised well and sort of have a great belief system, there's still going to be self-doubt. You got people coming at you who want to be part of you, maybe for good reasons, certainly for bad. I saw all the shit that she had to deal with online. It was a fucking disgrace. I mean, I shouldn't be cursing as much. It was a disgrace. Um, and yet, she's got to process this. And keep in mind, and I know you know this, Julie, like, people Sarah's age, like, online for them is essentially how they were raised. It is a massive part of who they are and their identity, and it's very hard to turn off. So I wonder just in you talking with her, if she talked about that, that like, you know, you go from essentially, for lack of a better word, a bit of an anonymous college athlete to all of a sudden, like you said, you're getting invited to the ESPYs. Yes, um, we did talk about that. And it is a huge adjustment. And what I kind of learned from her is that at the time, she wasn't really processing it. Um, she was just kind of saying like, hey, this is cool or hey, this sucks, but then kind of moving on. I mean, she's such a busy person. Um, she's such a focused athlete that she wasn't dwelling on any of this stuff in the moment, which I think is a good thing and a bad thing, right? I mean, everyone needs time to process these big changes in her life. And she didn't really have that opportunity. And like you said, she was kind of thrust into the spotlight and it wasn't even for the things she's been doing her whole life. I mean, clearly she's had dreams of, you know, making a successful life out of soccer. And while she has had a successful career, you know, uh, Vanderbilt won the SEC tournament in 2020. Um, she, you know, it's weird to be admired for something that you did for like two weeks of your life. Um, and the online component absolutely factors into that. I mean, one thing we talked about is that NIL deals, uh, which obviously weren't uh, a thing when she first became famous, or she would have had even more NIL deals, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, starting from about a year ago, she's had these NIL deals. And that means you have to keep up appearances for your personal brand. You can't just you know, neglect that. So you have to be on social media, on Instagram, being positive, being happy. And so the pressure of that combined with the pressure of yes, just being her age and the environment she's raised in. I mean, that's a lot to deal with. You, um, you, in term from your reporting, um, she did take a break from soccer, 
but she is now contemplating whether to enter the NWSL draft, which would take place in December. You would probably have a better sense of this than me. Like, I don't know where she stands, like scouting wise uh, regarding other potential goalies who could make that league. Obviously she's a big name. And so there would be a marketing element to the NWSL trying to make that work. When you last spoke with her, um, how does she see the prospect of going for a professional soccer career? And where is she right now with her own mental health? She's in a much better place with her mental health. Um, she got back on medication that she had been on before for anxiety. She started seeing her sports psychologist much more frequently at North Texas. Um, she started reaching out to her support network instead of just withdrawing from them. And I think that all made a huge difference for her. Um, in terms of her career, um, I think that's sort of a complicated question as it, you know, as it would be for anyone that age or even someone my age or your age. Um, there's a lot that goes into that decision for her. Um, I think, I don't know exactly what her odds are of making the NWSL. I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't pay super close attention to the college soccer world, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be an interesting marketing opportunity for the league. Um, and of course, she's a very skilled goalkeeper. Um, I kind of got the sense when I talked to her that she was leaning more toward the other direction of just continuing to pursue the sort of business and management path. Um, but again, she had this great summer at Minnesota, Minnesota Aurora FC um where it's a semi-pro team um so an unpaid opportunity for her um but she was a goalkeeper there and that team went on an incredible run where they lost in the championship game in the uslw league um and that was the most fun she's ever had playing soccer so maybe that is a question in the back of her mind like do i try to pursue this after all um you know it's a woman-owned team that she played for aurora and uh, all women coaches is the first time she had that experience. That's got to be a boon to her mental health. And yeah, so I, she's kind of wrestling with these two things. My sense when we talked again was that she was leaning more toward the business side of it, but you know, you never know. All right. Let's, um, let's, let's sort of morph into the, the issue of athletics and mental health writ large. As I mentioned um, earlier, you are working on a book called Mind Game. It's scheduled to come out in 2024. I assume if you're going to release that uh, out there, Julie, you've got a publishing contract. So congrats on that. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Um, what, um, what do you hope to do with this book? Like if you, uh, understanding that you're still reporting it, if like, uh, you know, if I'm sitting across the table for you and I got $20 million and I'm looking to invest in <laughs> book projects, Give me your minute and a half uh, pitch on on what you want this well, book. Well, first to be. of all, I hope you really do have that twenty million dollars. <laughs> so, <laughs> if I was, I'd be ending this podcast right now, Julian, heading to uh, heading to Bora Bora. <laughs> or, or Fair enough. Yeah. So, the first thing I'm trying to do with this book, I think, is to just tell these stories of athletes, both the ones we know, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, and the ones who were slightly less prominent or came years before it was okay to speak out about this stuff. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I just talked to uh, Bill Pulsifer, the former Met MLB pitcher, yeah, journeyman. Yep. Um, you know, he was one of the first to really come out and say he was dealing with anxiety and depression. And so I want people to know stories like his too, because I was telling him this, but 
when I read coverage like that, I sit around and wonder for like years afterward how these guys, how these athletes are doing. And I, I kind of want other people to have that opportunity to learn those answers too. And I want people to think critically about how we talk about athletes' mental health, what our expectations of these athletes are, and what solutions, you know, if any, can we think of that might be coming down the pike? One of the things that, um, that, that I've come to realize, and I think you'll obviously have a much better sense of this, is that I find that athletes, both current and former, really are, are okay talking about this. In many ways, I think I've, I've found that there are, um, there are certainly a lot of former athletes who find it very therapeutic to discuss things that they really could not discuss when they were active in their sport. And I wonder if, um, at least in the course of your early reporting, that you found that because I mean, both of us know this, like literally we are talking, I don't, and I'm not using hyperbole here, hundreds of thousands of like sort of stories about athletes at any different level of athletics who've had mental health issues. And these stories have never been told. Yeah. You know, some people will ask me, is it hard to get people to open up to you? And, you know, depending on the person, of course it can be, but I think in general, people are so eager to tell their own stories and it's almost cathartic in some cases. Um, at least one person I interviewed was crying over Zoom with me. Um, you know, it's it's this opportunity that they haven't really had before unless, you know, say they have been published in like the Players' Tribune or what have you, um, or have had the luxury of like a glossy magazine profile or something like that. So in general, I think people are eager to talk about this. From your, I think one thing that seems to be um, really heading in the right direction is a lot of professional uh, athletic uh, teams and like leagues have come to understand how much mental health is a part of what they do. So they have um, therapists and psychologists on staff. They have mental health coaches. Where it seems to me that like, the real step forward has to come is the college ranks. What have you found so far about like at the, the legitimate division one level where there's a lot of pressure on these athletes, like what kind of resources do they have? And from your expertise, what kind of resources do you think they need? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times colleges are like, Hey, we're on our game. We have a sports psychologist um on staff for these athletes that's specific to them in the athletic department and i'm like okay great but that's one person for how many hundreds of athletes so that's where i think a big improvement needs to come is realizing they need to spend for more than just one position um and i think there's still a big gap with coaches to be honest i hear a lot of college students talking about their coaches and how they're afraid to come forward because you know, they do worry about it limiting their playing time or, you know, being maybe they'll be encouraged to transfer stuff like that. I mean, I think it's still a really big deal. And I think as coaches come from future generations, that problem will kind of take care of itself as coaches continue getting younger. But I mean, that's not to say that older coaches can't or shouldn't learn about mental health stigma and what they can do to support their athletes. Do you find or have you found that there's a difference in terms of how um, 
female athletes, particularly at the college level, will try to get help versus male athletes? Like, I guess, uh, and maybe there'll be multiple chapters of this in your book, but like, how does gender play a role in your opinion on this from what you've uh, discovered so far? Gender plays a huge role. Um, I think women have an easier time coming forward. Um, and that's partially due to like sexist norms in our society, right? Where we've told women that they are emotional, they're hysterical, you know, that they're expected almost to have these problems. Whereas for men, especially in the most masculine sports like football, I mean, a lot of those guys are terrified to come forward. And that's not to say that some women aren't, but um, yeah, I think gender plays a really big part in this. Race does too. Uh, Julie, you know this. There's a lot of athletes um, that have come out, particularly athletes of a certain, um, you know, certain age group. You know, between like you know, uh, or I should say, former athletes between like let's say 30 and 50, where they're they're willing to discuss their the intersection of mental health and and their sport. Um, Brianna Scurry was one not too long ago where she talked about sort of dealing with mental health issues. I would imagine for your book, I mean, there there has to in some ways be um, a sales aspect to this in that you want to, you want to talk to people or do you want to talk to athletes who people have heard at, who heard of, who, who people have cared about. So if you don't want to give the specifics, I understand that cause you still may be in your reporting, but are there sort of well-known athletes that for this book that you would like to talk to and that, and, and whose mental health journey you would like to tell? Yeah, of course. Uh, by the way, I read Brianna Scary's book. It's really, really good. So I highly recommend that. Um, and there are definitely certain athletes that I'm hoping to talk to. I mean, I think we have to be realistic about this and recognize that the bigger names I'm able to talk to, the more it's going to catch people's interest. And the more it catches people's interest, the more people can stand to learn from the stories I'm telling. Um, so absolutely, like I, I, I am still trying to talk to Michael Phelps. I'm still trying to talk to Simone Biles. Um, you know, it's, they have a lot going on and I don't begrudge anyone who doesn't choose to talk to me, but I think especially those stories of these people that are kind of larger than life in some ways, those are, those at least have the potential to be the most misunderstood. I think you see this with Simone Biles a lot where people boil down her story to like, Oh, she's so brave or how inspiring or like, and I'm like, well, she also thought she was going to maybe die if she did those moves. So it, it's hard. Like, there's a lot going on with Simone Biles that was physical as well as mental. And I think we kind of gloss over stuff like that. Here's the last one for me. And it's it's much more of a uh, of a marketing question than a, than a, than a content question. Um, when your book comes out in 2024, have you gotten a sense that people will be interested in having you on for this topic i am optimistic which is you know not always the state of people in our business but i am optimistic that uh you're gonna hit a really kind of good moment to have this book come out because i think again had this had you written this book in 1985 1995 even like 2005 i just think it would be processed differently and I think you hit on this when we were talking the younger generation just like you talk to an 18 year old or a 20 year old or a 15 year old they're just 
they're just more willing to talk about this stuff publicly. It's not hidden in the shadows anymore. So, you know, again, you got to waste, you got a couple of years, obviously, before this comes out. But um, I don't really have a question for you. I just, I guess I would say, I hope that you really, and I know it's not always in an author's sort of DNA to do this. I hope you really push hard to try to get this into the hands of some places that have some very big reach. Because I, I think you might be pleasantly surprised that they'll be interested in this topic because we're in a different moment when it comes to this topic. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I think I, I sort of go two ways on this where some days, and I'm sure this is common with people who have books, but some days I'm like, oh man, this is great timing. Like everyone's going to want to read this. And sometimes I'm like, no one's going to give a shit about this. <laughs> like, So it's good when people remind me that they're like, is an interest in this. And it, you know, it might be able to do well from a marketing perspective um, because I think it's really important stuff to get out there. And, you know, not necessarily like me personally opining on this, but, you know, just hear what these athletes have to say. And, you know, hopefully as we go forward, athletes like Brandon Scurry won't feel they have to wait until like, years and years after their retirement to come forward like this. Hopefully my book is just kind of the start of getting people's stories out there. Yeah. Uh, so I'll finish up with this and this is just my read. doesn't mean I'm right or not, but like, I feel like there's two sort of factions here. There's a faction of people who, uh, who have come to understand like the pressures that athletes face, particularly young athletes. And I think they're far more understanding of this because like, again, mental health is in a, it's more discussed. It's sort of, talked about there's another faction that's like you know still the buck up How, look at all the criticism that um simone biles got at the olympics from quite frankly some asshole mouth breathers but like there's a lot of them out there so it's interesting i think your book's going to come out at a time where those two factions still exist but in my view doesn't mean i'm right but it's just in my view i think the world is more understanding of this because people are now more willing to discuss this in their own lives and like, it's not a stigma to say, hey, I'm on antidepressant, uh, you know, I'm on, um, uh, you know, Lexapro or antidepressant medicine, or hey, I take Xanax because I have anxiety, or hey, I was diagnosed uh, as bipolar. So I, I, I am optimistic. I think, I think we're headed in the right direction. And quite frankly, I think there's a lot of things in the United States that are heading the absolute wrong direction. But I, I have more, I have some um, optimism here. So I'm, I'm happy that your book's coming out. But again, I, I feel like it's going to be well-received. I mean, we'll, I will definitely have you back on when it comes out, but I'm trying to give you the pep talk, Julie. I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like you've hit on something that's not only important, but I think the timing is good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate your optimism for where this is going because sometimes when you tell a lot of these stories, you're like, man, things are really bleak. Everyone's having problems. So it's good to take a step back and really like, remember that things have been trending in a great direction with this. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately you're right. I think like the numbers are up and that's obviously not anything we root for, but some of the reason the numbers are up is because people are now willing to get help and people are now willing to acknowledge what they used to suffer in silence. So yeah. you sort of, you can look at it sort of both ways. Uh, Julie Kliegman is a writer and copy chief for sports illustrated. Her most recent piece is about Sarah Fuller's journey from kicker to uh, at Vanderbilt to being a mental health advocate. And again, um, those of you who follow college football is pretty 
incredible story that uh, this soccer player can just basically walk onto the Vanderbilt team and become a kicker. Uh, and again, Sarah Fuller never said she was an NFL kicker, but you, you just have to understand how crazy good an athlete you have to be to be able to even possibly make that transition to come on and do that. So I got immense respect for Sarah Fuller. And then Julie's book, Mind Game, which is how athletes navigate mental health, scheduled to come out in 2024. Julie, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, thank you for coming on the Sports Media Podcast today. And I wish you uh, nothing but the best when it comes to uh, the reporting of your upcoming book. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great to be back with you. All right. Uh, back in the studio, my thanks to my three guests this week. They were all excellent and uh, you know, um, three very different uh, sort of content areas that they specialize in. But uh, you know, follow all their work. Obviously, when it comes to Ian Dark, a little bit easier to follow just given he's on television, particularly if you're a soccer fan. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch archives page. Uh, last couple of podcasts we've had, had a reckoning for Canada Hockey. That was a conversation with Katie Strang, Dan Robeson, and Ian Mendes, my colleagues at The Athletic, who are uh, investigating the allegations and sexual assault regarding uh, Hockey Canada. We had Jamie Erdahl, the new host of Good Morning Football on the NFL Network. Uh, a really great conversation, super honest. From her podcaster, Conrad Thompson, on uh, his continuing uh, empire. A couple roundtables with Chad Finn and Austin uh, Carp on the latest on sports media. Tom Rinaldi on his new uh, serialized podcast on Lyman Bostock Jr. And uh, Monica McNutt was on this podcast not too long ago. Had an emergency podcast on USC and UCLA heading to the Big Ten with Andy Staples. ESPN, Jimmy Pitaro, June 63. Conversation with him. Again, if you like this, uh, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That super helps. My thanks to Patrick Antonetti. Thank you to everybody Cadence 13. And thank you for listening. I'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.